Well, good morning, everyone. We're glad that you're joining with us this morning. Uh, please take a moment and grab the friendship pads at the end of the pews and pass them along uh, the pew so you can see who is here this morning. If you're visiting with us for the first time this morning or the first time in a long time, we're really glad that you're with us. Um, we have a packet of information that we would like to give to you that tells you a little bit more about Alden Union Church and ways that you can uh, engage in some of what's going on here. So if you're visiting for the first time, would you just lift your hand up as Pastor Kevin makes his way down the center aisle? He'd be happy to put in your hands that packet of information. There's also a card in there for you to take and fill out and drop in the offering plate later uh, to tell us who you are so that we might acknowledge your visit with a letter. Um, couple of announcements that we want to go over with everybody to make sure that we're all on the same page. Tonight at 6.30, uh, part three of our four-week uh, elective series that's going on. Uh, there are, there's information listed in the bulletin. You can see exactly what electives are happening, but uh, tonight's number three of those four weeks, so we encourage you to join us this evening to, to, uh, partake, to participate with us on that. If you've ever considered going to the Holy Land, Pastor Ed is considering taking a trip there in 2017. Uh, so if you've ever considered going and, and seeing some of the sites in Israel where so many of the events of the Bible took place, uh, there's going to be an informational meeting this afternoon at 5.30 in the conference room next to the chapel. Uh, we're going to start planning itineraries and costs for the trip. It'll take place in June of 2017. Uh, there'll be some highlights shared about their last trip in 2013, so if that has any interest to you, come this afternoon, uh, be a part of that informational meeting. If you have any other questions, you can contact Pastor Ed about that. Parents, make sure you're reading the announcements in the bulletin, especially the one concerning communion next Sunday morning. We want you to be prepared as uh, we begin to have, or as we get ready to have communion and make sure that your children are prepared for that. There's a family church cleanup day coming on May 9th. Again, more details are in the bulletin. And there's a bunch of inserts in the bulletin, um, so make sure you take a look at those. There's one for ladies about an evening of elegance that's coming soon. There's one about centennial events and a biographical look at Pastor uh, Mrs. Allen Dean. So you'll want to make sure that you take note of those things as well as everything else that's in the bulletin. The top of our order of worship this morning uh, is Isaiah 57, 15. It says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of the contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Would you join me as we pray and prepare ourselves for worship this morning? Father, we are grateful that we are able to be in this place together because we recognize who you are. And in light of who you are and your holiness, who we are not. And it is only because of your son, Jesus Christ, and his blood that we are able to, to come to you this morning, that you hear our prayers, that our worship might be acceptable to you. And so, Father, we pray as we, as we worship you this morning through song, through prayer, through the response to your word, through giving, 
and in every way, Father, you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth, because we recognize that you alone are worthy of all worship and praise. So help us to that end to put aside everything else that's going on in our minds and our lives, that we might focus on you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. While in exile as an old man on an island in the middle of the Mediterranean, the Apostle John wrote for us a very vivid vivid description of his experience seeing God. I'd like you to do something a little bit differently this morning. If you'd shut your eyes, close your eyes, and imagine as I read that account, imagine what he saw and maybe what he felt like as he saw it. So uh, shut your eyes, use your imagination, and listen to God's Word. I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, And seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night... They never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. You can open your eyes. With those images in mind, we're going to sing a couple of hymns. If you'll take your hymnal, turn to 13 and put your finger there, because we're going to come to it at the end of the first hymn. And then with your finger in 13, turn to 262. Holy, 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 let's stand together as we sing.
Stay standing. We're going to read a little bit of scripture together, and then you can be seated. A few centuries before that story that we read in Revelation, the prophet Isaiah also saw a vision of God that not only caused him to see God, but caused him to see himself more clearly, uh, see himself unmasked by any pretenses or excuses. And uh, together, let's read those and some other reflections about ourselves. I'll read the italicized, you read the bold. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his Maker? None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As he who called you is holy, You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Be seated.
What a marvelous song to call us to prayer. So let's pray. Father, it really is only by grace that we're able to come before you, and you've invited us and encouraged us to come into your presence. I want to thank you, Lord, for that. I want to thank you, Lord, that we are this year celebrating 100 years of the opportunity as a group to come to you on a regular basis every week as a church. We want to thank you, Lord, for that grace. I want to thank you, Lord, too, for the commitment we have for growing in grace, growing in Christ, reaching out to the world. And, Father, we would ask that you would help us to know you more clearly and deeply as, we, as we're here today. We pray for Pastor Paul as he spends time sharing your word with us. May your Holy Spirit prick our hearts and encourage us, help us to understand and see you better as we interact with you. And then, Father, we think of our world. We think of those that are in Nepal that are suffering from the earthquake. We would ask, Lord, you would bless them and you would encourage them. And, Father, I want to pray specifically for Dr. Eyes, Dr. Paul Eisensee's son, uh, Jonathan, and his wife, uh, Taryn. We would ask, Lord, you would use them. We think you've kept them safe along with their three children. We pray, Lord, that you would be with them as they interact with those around them, that they would be able, those around them would be able to see you in their lives. We pray for peace and comfort for those in that, in that area. And Lord, we pray that your hand would be upon the recovery efforts that are, that are going on. In the same way, Father, we pray for our missionaries. We would ask, Lord, that you would be with uh, David and Tricia Hoy, that you'd bless them and that you would use them as they reach out to truckers. We thank you for Tyler, who came to know you in the not-too-distant past. We ask you, as a new believer, you'd, you'd give him an opportunity to be discipled. We want to thank you, Lord, for the new chaplains that are helping, that are helping in this ministry along uh, David. And then, Father, we think of those that are having uh, battles in our congregations, whether it be physical or whether it be financial, relational, or any other issues. Lord, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would guide them. Your presence would be ever near to them. We ask, Lord, you would strengthen them and comfort them in the way that only you can. And then, Father, we think of the military. This week we think of Ed Linville specifically. And this weekend as he's going through training exercises, we pray that you would strengthen his abilities to do the things that he's been called to do within the service. May he be a light to those around him of Jesus Christ. And now, Father, we then we think of those who are in college, and as they get ready in the not-too-distant future to, to finish up there with exams and, and head back home, we pray that you'd be with them. Specifically this week, we think of Rebecca and Tim Crawford. Lord, use them in their, in their, minister, or in their uh, schools to be a light for you, to reach out to those around them, mold them as they, as they do their education. And Father, we think of Mark Brett, who's a part of the House Committee. As the leader of the week, we pray that you'd be with him as he makes decisions and does the various aspects of his duties as uh, part of the trustees, Lord, we would ask that you would give him wisdom in all that he does. And then, Father, we uh, continue to pray for Pastor Paul and for the ministry team here. We pray that you would keep us united and that you would use the services for your glory. Father, we would also ask, as we think of the whole aspect of uh, forgiving our debts, we have the opportunity this morning to give back to you so, Father, we want to thank, thee. thank you for that opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. As the ushers come, would you stand and let's sing together the doxology. Praise God from all blessings flow. Praise Him all. 
seated. sang about God's grace. Nancy sang about God's mercy. Isn't that a great combination? God's grace, he gives us what we don't deserve, his mercy. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. And we're going to see that in combination today. Right now, it's time for the children. If you will go to Kids Church, and it's time for all of us. Find somebody nearby and greet. Make sure everybody feels very, very welcome as much as you possibly can.
Okay, ladies and gentlemen, as soon as our pastor of worship and our worship committee chairman are seated, we'll get started with the message. <laughs> Sounded like you were having a lot of fun with each other, and that's a, that's a very good thing. We're continuing a study in the Lord's Prayer in the middle of our study of Matthew's Gospel. So this morning, I'd like to invite you once again to turn to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking really at five words and forgive us our debts here this morning, right in the middle of what is referred to as the Lord's Prayer. If we pick up in verse 9, Jesus gave us this sample prayer. He didn't mean for this to be the only prayer we ever prayed. He didn't mean for us to be praying this by rote all of the time. But some of the things that we address as we pray, pray then like this, he said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As we come to verse 12, this is a verse that has been a source of confusion to some over the centuries. My prayer is that we'll gain a clear understanding together this morning of what Jesus meant by that and what we should mean by that when we do pray. So the first thing that comes to mind as we look at that, forgive us our debts, it's forgiveness from what exactly? What are we, referred, what are we referring to when we talk about debts? First, let me say this. This may seem very obvious to some of you, but it's not obvious to everybody. Forgiving our debts has nothing to do with mortgages or credit lines or car loans or credit card indebtedness. That's an entirely different story. It has to do with something different than that. It's interesting that almost every translation uses the word debts. Now, let me ask you this question, if it's the same with you as it is with me. Sometimes I'm in a place where I'm not familiar with and they're going to say the Lord's Prayer and there's this tiny little bit of tension. When they get to this point, are they going to say debts or trespasses? Anybody else ever come across that? Yeah, which one are they going to say? And I don't want to say it too overtly because I don't want to stand out or something along that line. So I wanted to be sure, and something that surprised me greatly, I wanted to find out which translations use trespasses because ours here obviously uses debts. Which translations use trespasses? Do you know what I found out? None of them do. Some of you are saying King James. That's my first thought was King not King James. Very, very interesting. A few newer translations will use the word sin or wrongs. Forgive us our sin or forgive us our wrongs. I couldn't find a translation that uses trespasses until I went back to 1526. The Tyndale Bible has trespasses. That translation is the one that was used in the 1549 Book of Common Prayer and is preserved in the Book of Common Prayer to the present day. That's what the Anglican Church and some denominational churches will use. It's not in a translation until 1548 till we go back there. King James in 1611 changed it actually to debts where it's been in every translation since then until these modern ones will translate it sin or wrongs. But then the question becomes, what debts? What do I owe God. And clearly some of these modern translations have it right. Debts is a reference to sin. And sin can be described in a lot of ways. 
There are at least six different Greek words in the New Testament that we translate into English as sin. And each one gives us a little different aspect. But each one helps to accumulate the indebtedness we have to God. Now let me warn you in advance. The first part of the message this morning is not going to be real pleasant. Not unless you like to be called a sinner and you like to be told all the things that you do wrong. I don't like to do that. I'm not looking forward to it, the first part. But the second part gets really good. Because then we're going to see God's mercy and we're going to see God's grace and we're going to see what it is when we pray to forgive us our debts. What exactly does that mean? And what exactly have we been forgiven for already? So the first word that I want us to look at is the word hamartia. Hamartia is used more than 125 times in the New Testament to describe an aspect of sin. Normally it is translated as sin. The technical name for the study of sin in higher theological educational circles is hamartiology. Maybe you've heard that word before and not known what it means. It's a study, really, of sin. And hamartia is sin, translated sin in the Scriptures. We can understand what the word means as we look at the screen together for just a moment. You see here that hamartia is indicating something to having to do with arrows in a target. It has to do with missing the target. It has to do with missing the mark. Ordinarily, it has to do with falling short of the target. And if you were to look at that carefully, you see that these arrows are all around the target, but falling short, the arrows would be up here on the floor, uh, up here because somebody's been shooting but couldn't get there that far. So we have the idea of missing the mark. So clearly stated in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God. Now, I said this was a lot of bad news. Maybe there's some good news already, and that is that every one of us is in the same boat. Every one of us is a sinner. Even the ones with coats and ties on, and even the ones that are, that are dressed real nicely, and the ones that have been coming to church for 40 and 50 and 60 years, every one of us is in the same boat. Every single one of us is a sinner. And every single one of us, if we were to pick up that bow and shoot those arrows, everyone would fall short of the glory of God. Some might be able to shoot their arrows farther than others, but no one can shoot all the way to God's target. God's target is too far away. His target is absolute perfection. And none of us will ever hit that. It's this holy God that we were singing about. It's this God that causes us to shrink back knowing that we're sinners, except that He did something to bring us into His presence. He gave us His Son to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus died on the cross. He paid it all. Jesus said it is finished, and it was finished. He paid for all of our sin back then. One of the Greek scholars in defining hamartia puts it this way. He says, it is a sinning whether it occurs by omission or commission, and it's a thin in, sin in thought and feeling, or in speech and action. Some of us only think of sin as an action, but it's in all these areas, thought, feeling, speech, action as well. Anyone here aware of any hamartia in your life? Are you aware of any sin of this nature where you've missed God's standard, you've missed God's mark, you've fallen short. I think all of us would say that we're in that same boat, and the Scripture certainly does. But have you done things that are wrong according to God's standards? 
That's an act of commission, such as was referred to earlier. Have you failed to do things you should have done? Have you thought, felt, said, or done things that have failed to measure up to God's standard of perfection? Failing to do things that should have done, that's omission. Evangelism Explosion has a textbook, and in it, psychologists tell us that we have 10,000 thoughts that go through the human mind every day. 10,000 thoughts. I know you're thinking, I know somebody can't possibly be 10,000 thoughts. Maybe it's 1,000. But you're thinking, I probably have 20,000 because I'm a great thinker. But roughly 10,000 thoughts through the human mind every day. Now let me ask you a question. Let's assume that you hit the average. 10,000 thoughts cross through your mind. Are they all pure? Every one of them? Every one of the 10,000, are they all pure? Or... Going back to Philippians 4, are they all noble? Are they all lovely? Are they all admirable? Or going elsewhere in Scripture, have every one of those thoughts been taken captive for the sake of the Lord, for His glory? I think we'd have to agree that no, we can't say that about any of us. Because as archers, none of us would hit the target. There are no Robin Hoods who are going to step out of the crowd and amaze us with their distance and accuracy. This involves us all. That's good news and bad news. The good news is we don't stand alone. The bad news is that all of us miss the mark. There's another Greek word that's translated sin in the New Testament, parabasis. Parabasis is a word for an aspect of sin. It's only used seven times in the New Testament, all in the epistles. But it has to do with this, and we're familiar with it. It has to do with a going over by way of disregarding something or violating something. It means to step across a line, that forbidden line. And you can see the individual caricatured in the middle. Stepping across that line, and we do that. That's sin. God says, don't step over this line. So what's the first thing we want to do? The first thing that a child would want to do is, let's step over that line. And once we've stepped over that line, let's keep on stepping and leave that line behind. That's an area of sin in each one of our lives. There is uh, an example of that in Romans chapter 4, verse 15, when parabasis is used and it's translated here as transgression. Nowhere do we see transgression or trespasses, rather. Um, we, we will see it in some of the other um, verses that we will be seeing, but not in the Lord's Prayer. But here it says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law... There is no transgression, no law. That means there's been no line drawn. So there's no transgression specifically violating that law because we don't have a line to step over. Question, a lot of questions for each one of us. Have any of us dared to cross God's line? Have any of us known God's standard and defied his will anyway? Third word, anomia. This describes the condition of one without law, either because he's ignorant of the law or because he chooses to violate it. It's total contempt for the law. It's based on the suffix ah, meaning no, and nomos, meaning law. No law. It's where the term lawlessness comes. It's willful, flagrant rebellion against God. That word's used 15 times in the New Testament. An example Matthew 24, verse 12. And because lawlessness, that's the word, will be increased, the love of many 
will grow cold. Lawlessness. The Antichrist spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 is called animas. Same word. The man of lawlessness. There's a fourth word. Paraptoma. And it has to do with a fall or a slip. A false step. Though it carries often the idea of a willful or careless or deliberate action of throwing oneself into a fall. I want to illustrate this if we can go back here on the screen for just a second. There it is. Paraptoma. It's a deliberate fall. Those of you that follow ice hockey, you understand there's a penalty for embellishment or a penalty for somebody who is faking getting tripped or hooked or something along that line because it shows the referee up and he's trying to draw a penalty by doing a little bit of an acting job. So he's deliberately falling in front of the referee, and the fans get all excited, but they've made that a penalty now, so that when the referee feels that somebody has embellished that, it's a penalty. That's the same idea that's before us here in Paraptoma, the, the whole idea that somebody is deliberately throwing himself into a fall, not accidentally slipping up. And here the ESV uses the word trespasses. An example of it, Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, the Lord willing, we'll get to at some point. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then we come to the word adikia. And the word adikia is a word that means behavior that does not conform to the moral norm. Its verb form means to act unjustly in doing harm to each other. We've looked at some words now that talk about sinning against God. We're missing His mark or we're, we're doing things against Him. This is having to do with one another. The idea that we're sinning against each other. Think about that. Do you ever sin against each other? Are you ever guilty of gossiping about other people or complaining or criticizing other people or defaming other people or anything along that line? That's where this word comes in. And then the next word is ophilema. Ophilema. And um, the screen will catch up. This is not the um, error of our sound man. This is just something that happens with our machinery every, every week about this time. But ophilema gives us a picture of what the rest of the words all add up to. It's the word that's used twice in Matthew 6.12 in the Lord's Prayer. It's the word when we say, give us this, or excuse me, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Debts and debtors come from this word, ophilema. It means literally to owe a debt. When we sin, we owe something to God. And there are consequences that we pay for violating His standards. Very interesting that in Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer. This is Matthew's we're looking at. In Luke's, he substitutes the word hamartia for this word that is before us now, meaning they're both the same thing. The indebtedness and the sin all combine. Sin is a violation of the obedience that we owe God. And it shows itself in all of these forms and it accumulates into an indebtedness that we have before God. So think about all of those sins. Accumulate all of them in your own life as I do in my own life. And I see that there is a huge indebtedness that I owe to the Lord. 
For those who are not in Christ, and by that I mean those who have never personally invited the Lord Jesus to come into their life to save them from their sin. For those who are in that kind of a situation, that debt will be called in someday. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11-15, where we refer to the great white throne judgment, it talks about the eternal consequences of that debt that we owe. And if it hasn't been cleared up, those consequences are eternal. Now, believe it or not, the purpose of this message is not to convince us of what dirty, rotten sinners we are. That's not my purpose. That's only half my purpose. And the reason that that's only half my purpose is because I want to go beyond that to appreciate the extent of the forgiveness that God offers to us in light of the fact that we are that indebted to Him. So first, we have to understand that we do have a huge debt that we owe God. And then having understood that and having come to Him and doing things His way to understand the great forgiveness that He offers to us. Do you fully appreciate what it means to be forgiven from all of your missing the marks, falling short of perfection, crossing over God's forbidden lines, willfully rebelling against God, falling away from God, acting unjustly or harmfully to others, and therefore owing Him a debt you could never pay? Maybe even at this point you think you're not so bad. And it's not my purpose to criticize anybody apart from myself included with all of us. But maybe you don't think you're so bad. Think about it this way, though. Supposing you commit two sins every day of your life. Two sins. Is that fair? Is that gracious? Two sins a day. By the time you're 16, allowing for four years of leap year, you will have committed 11,688 sins. But not everybody in here is 16. How about if you're age 40? If you're age 40, and now we'll allow 10 years for, or 10 light years, or leap years, excuse me, not light years, leap years. Age 40, two sins a day, 29,220 sins. Some of you are older than 40. I won't ask anybody to confess, but there may be some 80-year-olds among us. You've sinned on average then 58,440 sins. And that's um, allowing for 20 leap years, by the way. That means you 80-year-olds are really sinners. Did you know that? (laughs) So are the 40-year-olds. So are the 16-year-olds. So are all of us. On average, two sins a day. Shall I make it worse? Suppose you sin more than two times a day. Suppose it's more than two times. Then we've got another problem. That evangelism explosion textbook that I referred to earlier guesses 50 sins a day. And that's just a guess. There are so many sins of omission and commission. How can you do that? But they say, let's let's just take it at 50. I'm not going to put that number on the screen. You know why? It's depressing. It would be something like 1.461 million sins for those of you 80-year-olds again. And corresponding amount for the rest of us. It's a lot of sins. John Calvin said, no one knows the 100th part of sin that clings to his soul. 
psychologist would agree with him. Psychologists tell us that we have forgotten 99% of all the things we have ever done wrong. Do you know what that means? You're sitting here thinking, maybe I'm not all that bad. You don't know the beginning of it because it's no longer in the memory. But it's there, and all of those sins are present. So how much sin and guilt does all that translate into over the course of a lifetime? Perish this thought. Suppose God charges compound interest on these sins. What a huge debt of sin we have. And what a heavy burden for one who does not have the assurance of sins forgiven. Can you imagine carrying that burden of unforgiven guilt and sin on us? Carrying that on us every day? And what a great sense of relief to have that burden lifted. How glorious it is to know real forgiveness. And that's what God offers. Real forgiveness for everyone. No one can ever say, I'm too bad to be forgiven. Because God will forgive every single one of us from every sin. That's part of His character. He is not like we are. There was this sign that appeared on a company bulletin board. It said, to err is human... To forgive is not company policy, but it is divine, as the saying really goes. To forgive is divine. Now, we come to a point where some of you may be thinking a question has come to your mind, and that is, forgiveness, I thought I already had forgiveness. I thought I was already forgiven everything. Jesus told us to ask God to forgive these debts as a regular part of our praying. It's included in his pattern prayer. Surely the thought occurred to many of you, but I've already received the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. I've been taught that all of my sins, past, present, and future, were all forgiven when I came to Christ. Have you been taught that? I hope you've been taught that. All of my sins, past, present, future, were forgiven when I acknowledged that I was a sinner And I receive the free gift of salvation that the Lord Jesus offers to me. Why do I need to ask God, often according to this pattern prayer then, why do I have to ask him for forgiveness all of the time when he's already forgiven it? I thought this was a pattern prayer for disciples, a pattern prayer for believers. Does this teach now that all of my sins were not forgiven when I was saved? Does this verse nullify Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Is there still condemnation? Do I need every time I pray to ask that God would forgive me the indebtedness that I have to him? Has it not been forgiven to this point? And so to summarize, maybe some of your thinking, and I think I can read you, and I think I've read some expressions. You're thinking, I thought I already had forgiveness. And the good news is you do. You do have forgiveness. If you've truly received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you've been forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future. Romans 8, 1 is still valid. There is, therefore, now, this moment, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your indebtedness has been canceled. You've been justified. You've been declared not guilty. You've been acquitted. There is no double jeopardy. You can't be tried again for the same crimes. Well, how does God view these debts that I owe? 
these sins, these wrongs, these crimes. How does God view them? If I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, how does he view those sins? I'm going to share with you from God's perspective. Several verses, kind of like in a little collage. Psalm 103, verse 12, and I love to go through these verses. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I love how exact the words in the Bible are. You notice it doesn't say here as far as the north is from the south. Why doesn't it say that? Because that can be measured, can it? There's a north pole and there's a south pole, and you can measure that. But when he says as far as the east is from the west, you can't measure that. That's limitless. You can just keep going. There's no way to tell when you stop and when you start. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. They're not there anymore. Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Now, what does that mean? That means that if God were there and He's writing everything down, He's marking all of our iniquities, all of our sins, He's making a big list. And if God were to do that, who could stand? But the implication here is that God doesn't mark iniquities. God is not keeping score for us. Otherwise, none of us could stand, but now all of us in Christ can stand. Micah chapter 7, verse 19. It says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. And then you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. How many of you wouldn't mind acting a little childish with me for just a moment? Okay, some of you wouldn't mind. I want us to picture this, feel this a little bit. It says, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Pretend that all your sins, all your indebtedness is right now on the floor in front of you. Will you do this with me? Well, I don't want to be the only one. I'll feel very conspicuous. What does God do? What does he picture? And then you're out in the middle of the ocean and you've got a, a, a rod and you're, you're casting your line. And what's happening to that? He's casting our sins into the depths of the sea. He's trying to make a point, metaphorically in many ways, but making the point that he doesn't have anything to do with our sins anymore. They're gone. And not only that, in Hebrews 8.12, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. It's not because God has a bad memory, because he chooses not to remember those sins any longer. Isaiah 43.25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. We used to sing a chorus, my sins are blotted out, I know. Do any of you know that? Do you remember that when my sins are blotted out, I know? I'm going to ask Shirley to come up and sing that. For, no, I won't, Shirley. <laughs> We're talking about grace and mercy, so I'm not going to do that. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us. How many of our trespasses? All. That's the good news. We don't have to carry a burden of sin around with us because when we're in Christ, we've acknowledged that we're sinners, we need a Savior, we've invited Christ to come into our life and to save us from our sin. We've acknowledged that He paid that debt on the cross. We don't have to carry that burden of sin any longer. And what does God think about it? How does God view this whole past debt? you know what He would answer? What debt? What that he's chosen not to remember that any longer. 
And neither should we. Neither should we fail to forgive ourselves from some of these things. And I know many people, many people who will say, I know that God has forgiven me, but I've done so many wrong things. I can, I can never forgive myself. Now forgive yourself. God forgives and God gives us the grace and the mercy. And we need to give some of that to ourselves sometimes as well. Here's your next question. Okay, I've heard everything that you've said. Then why do we pray those words? Why did Jesus put them in his prayer? Even though we become true Christians, we're not immune to sin. Every one of us continues to sin. I trust that that sin becomes less frequent, bothers us more when we do, grieves us more and more. Our consciences are more sensitized to sin, but we do continue to sin. Has that sin been forgiven? Yes, all sin has been covered, taken away, as we've already said. But there's one thing I haven't said yet. There are two aspects of forgiveness as we see in the Scriptures. One of them we've already seen. I refer to this as the judicial side. God is our judge. The Scripture makes it very clear about that. But we have been legally forgiven by our judge. I chose some words earlier. I'll repeat them right now. I chose them deliberately so that you could see this as judgment. The judge is sitting there, but there's no condemnation coming from the judge any longer. We have acquittal, complete justification, justified just as if I'd never sinned. There is no double jeopardy. Those are legal terms. And this is not the basis of our prayer request in Matthew 6.12. It doesn't ask God our Father to forgive us in a judicial sense. That happens at the moment of salvation. But there is a second aspect. I like to refer to this as the family side. God is also our Father. He's our Father. That's who's addressed in this prayer. He doesn't want us to sin, ever. It grieves Him, and He knows that it's bad for us. What father wants what's bad for his child? He doesn't want for us something that is bad. We have an ongoing family relationship. When we as Christians sin, there are several negatives that take place, not judicially, but in the family sense. We can lose our joy, the joy of our salvation. We're not going to lose our salvation, but we can lose the joy of our salvation because we understand when we're doing what we shouldn't be doing, it has an effect on us. It is a joy robber. We become unclean vessels. The Lord wants to use us, and God can use whoever and whenever He wants to use. But God, in a very special way, uses those who are pure vessels. Our testimonies for Christ suffers. We distance ourselves from the closeness we should share with our Father because we're disobedient children. Let me share an example of that. Some of you have dogs. Some of you have disobedient dogs from time to time. I can't relate to that. My dog is perfectly obedient all the time. Well, some of the time. But do you know that experience when you come home and dog has done something, crossed the line if you want to, uh, missed the mark, uh, if you want to use that, done something that should not have been done. And many dogs will do this. They will not come and greet you as normal. They will not come wagging the tail. They will not come barking. They will hide somewhere. They will slink off, and they will be there until you let them know everything's 
okay if you let them know everything is okay. I hope you do. You're not going to say to that dog, you can no longer be a member of this family anymore because you messed up. You can no longer be a member of our family. You're gone. We're going to call the SPCA. I guess it happens on rare occasions. But when we're thinking in terms of what God does in a family relationship, what we do is we distance ourselves from Him when we mess up. It has to do with that family relationship. What we need to do is to forsake all sin, confess it to God, agree with Him that it's sin. We say the same thing about it that He does. We have our joy restored. We mend the fences that have created tension in the family. You know, oftentimes we hear that the sinning Christian is out of fellowship with God. That's not possible. That's not the correct use of defining the word fellowship. Fellowship means to belong, to be a part of. We don't lose fellowship. But what we do, the sinning Christian, is out of step, out of character from where he should be. He doesn't share the intimacy of fellowship he should, but he's not out of the family. Turn with me to John, if you will, John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we see an analogy here that Jesus uses having to do with the foot washing when Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. I understand the main point of what's going on there. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm your Lord and Master, and if I were washing your feet, then you should be able to show that same kind of love to each other. There's there's a lot of one another that's shown by example in what Jesus did. But there's something else that is going on here. And if you if you look with me at verse 8, I'm sure you know this story, and Peter is going to be very reluctant. He doesn't want the Lord Jesus to wash his feet. So verse 8, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now, something's going on there. Something's going on there very, very definitely. Peter refusing that. Was Jesus that concerned with Peter's feet, do you think? You think he was really concerned with his feet? You think Jesus was offended if he wasn't allowed to wash Judas's feet because then Judas's feet would be dusty and that would be an offense. There's a whole lot more going on there. Jesus was using his feet to illustrate the deeper need of spiritual cleansing. That's something else that is going on there. In effect, he was telling Peter, no cleansing, no closeness. In other words, if you're not spiritually clean, then you cannot walk with me. Notice carefully that Jesus says, with me. He doesn't say in me. Jesus did not tell Peter that if he refused to have his feet washed, he would cease to be saved. He told him that if he permitted sin to go on uncorrected, he would lose some important closeness to Jesus. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, very interesting. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. The guests were supposed to bathe before coming to a feast. So only the feet had to be washed. There's spiritual application there. You are clean is equivalent here to being saved. Peter and all the other disciples were not in need of salvation. They were in need of cleaning up the dirt they got on their feet by walking the streets of this world. Dirt equals sin. Again, the second part of verse 10, verse 11, clarifies that Judas was not clean. 
He needed a whole bath, not spruced up feet. Spiritually, he was dirty all over. Spiritually speaking, we need to take only one bath, one full cleansing, and we're forgiven of all of our sin. My heart goes out to people who think they need to get saved every time somebody talks about the need to be saved. You only need to be saved once. You invite the Lord Jesus to come in, and he will come in, and he'll save you from your sin. Past, present, and future, it's all done. You're clean. But we still sin. We still get dirty. And when we sin, we wash our feet with 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, that is, we say the same thing about our sin that God says, that it's a wrong thing to do. It's not good for us. God doesn't want us to be sinning. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as a believer, we should be confessing our sins. And as we're confessing our sins, He is faithful always to be keeping us clean. That's what He's told us that He would do. Theologian put it this way in summary. So the message of this petition, forgive us our debts, is simply a plea that we experience the moment-by-moment cleansing that comes when we acknowledge our sin to the Lord. Very basic, very necessary. I don't need to get saved all over again. I don't need to keep asking God to forgive me from every sin that I've ever committed, but I want to keep short accounts with God by confessing my sin to Him and understanding His grace and His mercy. It's freeing. We don't have to walk walk around at all under the guilt of sin because Jesus took it all on himself. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that. Thank you that when we pray, even as we pray, forgive us our debts, we understand what that means. We understand your great forgiveness. We understand what you've done in that judicial sense. But we understand also that we don't want to be out of step We don't want to be creating tension in our own family relationship with you as our Father. So help us to keep short accounts. When we're aware of something, to agree with you, to say the same thing about it that you do, that it is wrong, and we want to get rid of it and be cleansed. Thank you for the cleansing that comes from you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a few extra moments to sort of practice what we've just heard. I'd like you to remain seated and sing one stanza of 438. It's a song which is really a prayer, asking God to look at us and uh, point out to us areas where we may need cleansing. And then we'll take a few moments to do that privately and then finish with a more positive, triumphant song that gives us great hope and assurance. So. Seated, sing with me the first stanza as a prayer to the Lord, and then I'll guide us through the rest.
let's take a few moments, just kind of scan our hearts as the Holy Spirit does what we've just asked Him to do. I'm going to suggest some areas that might help with that, and then um, you just pray silently, and uh, then we'll conclude in a few moments with some singing. First of all, perhaps you've been missing the mark in the way you've spoken to family or friends, strangers. Simply tell God what would be appropriate. Perhaps carelessly, but not none the same knowingly, we've crossed the line. We've kind of pushed the envelope on things we've done either privately or towards other people. If that's true, tell God about that. Perhaps ignoring an ongoing rebellion against God in wrong relationships or patterns of thinking, patterns of acting that need to be confessed. And if you're able to confess these things, thank God right now for the forgiveness and for the cleansing that he has offered and has given. Let's stand together and we'll sing a song. You may know this, a great hymn of uh, hope and assurance. Stand with me. We'll sing through three stanzas of it. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and Sinless Savior died, my sinful soul. 
Father, that's why we worship you, because you're such a great God, such a giving God, such a loving God, such a gracious God, such a merciful God, and all acted out on our behalf for your glory. So we thank you for that. Help us as we leave here to go out into this world to be salt, light, and fragrance, to be everything that you want us to be, never to be content with just making a living, but to make a difference so that others can come to know your great forgiveness as we enjoy and appreciate. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.